The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. The UN General Assembly votes to remove Russia from its Human Rights Council, with US President Biden hailing the move as an historic step, while Ukrainian President Zelensky hits out at Putin's leadership. Russia and its military are the main threat on the planet for freedom, people's safety, and for the concept of human rights. NATO countries pledge to supply Ukraine with more advanced weapons as the military alliance's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warns the war is about to intensify. What we see is a Russian regrouping and repositioning of their forces uh, moving out of uh, northern uh, Ukraine uh, but at the same time moving those forces to the east and we expect a big uh, battle uh, in Donbass. French campaigning goes to the wire with Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen vying for votes ahead of the first round of the elections on Sunday. The country's Minister of Transformation and Public Services tells CNBC far-right leadership would damage France. Marine Le Pen wants to divide French people. She has a vision for Europe. She has a vision on a lot of things, which are just smoke screens. Her solutions are not realistic. They weaken, divide, and are just empty words up against concrete actions by Emmanuel Macron. And Tesla's CEO Elon Musk courts EV makers, or rather holds court at the EV makers' so-called cyber rodeo, pledging to produce a half a million Model Y SUVs at the company's new Texas factory. Relative to production, prototypes are easy. Production is hard. And this building is the, the most advanced car factory that Earth has ever seen. The UN General Assembly has voted to suspend Russia from its Human Rights Council over what are called, quote, gross and systematic human rights violations reported in Ukraine by Russia's military. 93 states voted in favour of the US-led move, giving it the necessary two-thirds majority. US President Joe Biden praised the action, saying in the vote uh, was it was yet another example of how Vladimir Putin has turned Russia into a pariah state. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has warned the humanitarian situation in Bodryanka on the outskirts of the capital, Kiev, appears to be significantly more dreadful than the nearby Bucha, where Russian troops are suspected of having committed war crimes. In a video statement, Zelensky said the notion of human rights is alien to the Putin regime and its military. Russia has long had nothing to do with the concept of human rights. It might change one day, but for now, Russia and its military are the main threat on the planet for freedom, people's safety, and for the concept of human rights. Vladimir Putin's uh, closest spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, has admitted to CNBC's sister channel Sky News in an exclusive interview that Russian forces have suffered significant casualties in the war, but added he expects Russia to ultimately achieve its goals in the country. Peskov also dismissed the reported atrocities by Russian troops in Bucha, describing footage from there as staged. 
we have significant losses of troops and uh, it's, it's, it's a huge tragedy for us. The hospital was a fake. hospital was a fake and uh, uh, we have very serious reasons to believe that it was a fake and we insist on that. I don't want to operate any figures that are not confirmed or double confirmed. Uh, we, have, we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful in pronouncing any figures because we're living in a, uh, during a days of, of fakes, fakes and lies that we, that we need every day. The U.S. House and Senate have passed consecutive bills stripping Russia of its most favoured nation trading status, as well as banning all Russian oil imports. The oil ban reflects President Biden's executive order issued last month. However, both bills had stalled in the Senate before atrocities in Bucha pushed the lawmakers to get them through. Biden is expected to sign both bills into law imminently. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has told reporters at Thursday's NATO summit in Brussels that Western allies must sustain economic pressure on Russia, adding that more credible reports of Russian war crimes are emerging. The participation of all of these allies and partners highlights the remarkably broad coalition of countries from around the world that are united in standing with Ukraine and against the Russian government's aggression. Countries that recognize Moscow isn't just attacking one country, but the entire international rules-based order. For every Bucha, there are many more towns Russia has occupied and more towns it is still occupying, places where we must assume Russian soldiers are committing more atrocities right now. NATO foreign ministers have answered a plea by Ukraine by agreeing to supply it with heavy arms and advanced military technology. This after Ukraine's foreign minister, Dimtro Kaleba, said he had arrived at Thursday's NATO summit with a goal of seeking more weapons from the alliance. Speaking in Brussels, Kaleba also said Ukraine is preparing for a full-scale uh, Russian attack in the country's eastern Donbass region. As we speak, the battle for Donbass is underway. It has not reached its uh, maximum scale, but uh, every day the heaviest fighting takes place in that part of Ukraine. And more is to come, unfortunately. The battle for Donbas will remind you, and I regret to say it, but this is true, the battle for Donbas will remind you of Second World War, with large operations, maneuvers, involvement of thousands of tanks, armored vehicles, planes, artillery. Uh, this will not be a local operation based on what we see in Russia's preparations to it. Well, Hadley's spoken recently with uh, Jens Stoltenberg and Hadley, what we've seen here all the way through is a, a gradual ratcheting up of NATO's response and its willingness to supply heavier and more lethal armaments at this time. What's your reading on the latest commitment? 
It's fascinating, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, this latest visit by Dimitri Kuleba, he essentially said in the first few moments after arriving um, at the NATO headquarters in Brussels, my message to NATO members is weapons, weapons, weapons. This is what we need. This is what we are asking for. It's what we've been asking for for months now. Now, thinking about this a bit more broadly, um, just in the last few days, we've seen the Czechs actually giving tanks. They became the first NATO member to do this. They gave tanks to the Ukrainians, um, deployed tanks to Ukraine as a result of those calls uh, from the Ukrainian government for more help. But as far as NATO goes, as you say, they've been a bit loath to move forward with more significant contributions. And now they're saying in the last 24 hours um, that they've agreed to supply heavy weapons to Ukraine. Now, they had already been supplying anti-tank missiles, drones, and other defensive weaponry um, for this war effort. But as you say, more had to be done. And it seems as if they're um, on the table for doing that. Listen in to Jen Stoltenberg. We need to be realistic, and we have no indications that uh, President Putin has uh, changed his over, uh, uh, overall goal, and that is to uh, control uh, Ukraine and to, and to uh, achieve significant military victories on the battleground. So uh, we don't see a Russian retreat. Why we, what, what we see is a Russian regrouping and repositioning of their forces. Uh, moving out of uh, northern uh, Ukraine, uh, but at the same time moving those forces to the east. And we expect a big uh, battle uh, in Donbass, a big Russian offensive. Uh, and that's the reason why allies also highlighted today the urgency of uh, providing more uh, support to, uh, to Ukraine. And that was also the message, of course, from uh, Minister uh, Koleba. I mean, that's the crux of the matter. You heard from Jen Stoltenberg there, the secretary general of NATO, quoting essentially that they see no um, signs that President Putin is doing anything more with this supposed retreat than to regroup and move into Donbass and to continue his fight to take over Ukraine. Now, I thought it was also interesting that the rhetoric from the foreign minister of Ukraine uh, was so strong. He essentially said, either you help us now, and I am speaking about days, or your help will come too late Many people will die exactly because this help came too late. And he also seemingly suggested, listen, we know that NATO can't put boots on the ground in Ukraine, and we're not asking you to. Just give us the weapons, and we're going to fight Putin for you. Karen? Hadley, I wanted to get into what type of weapons, because we saw Kaleba really flesh that out yesterday about the difference between offensive and defensive, that they're all the same thing. But Blinken went on a little bit about the, the type of weapons that are effective, which uh, maybe sort of go and do a little bit more digging. And it seems as though this was really around ones that potentially the Ukrainians don't need training in, but also ones that could be useful at this point, given the type of offensive we are seeing from the Russians. Can you just talk us through those differences? Because obviously for Americans training Ukrainians around the use of sophisticated weapons now, this could be crossing a line potentially when it comes to NATO. It's interesting because I asked the foreign minister this in our correspondence over the last 24 hours as well. He said, you know, there are always long on promises, but um, in terms of the delivery uh, with those bureaucratic delays, you've got to wonder how quickly we're going to get those weapons to folks on the ground who so desperately need them. So essentially what we know so far is that NATO member countries have had already been sending anti-tech missiles, drones and other defensive weaponry 
Mr. Blinken essentially saying that they're looking into defensive weapon systems that they could get in place as quickly as possible to help the Ukrainians. Obviously, there's continuing sharing of intelligence between NATO member countries and Ukraine, um, as well as the United States. But one of the things that we'd also heard was the suggestion that Israel might be willing um, to share the Iron Dome system, for example. But of course, that's a system that uh, is is made, frankly, for a much smaller amount of territory. And it's also made uh, for terror attacks within its own country, potentially, as well. So you've got to think about this a bit more broadly and what a country the size of Ukraine would actually need. So I think that there is a bit of going to the drawing board on what those defensive capabilities will actually look like. But again, as I say, when I spoke with the foreign minister overnight, he essentially said, you know, one of the things that we really, really have been asking for is an end to the bureaucratic delays to get those weapons as quickly as possible into the hands of folks fighting on the ground. And it seems as if we're at least pushing the dial forward um, in terms of doing that. Now, I will be speaking in an exclusive interview with Jen Stoltenberg just a little bit later on in the morning, and I'm going to ask him about those defensive weapons specifically. Guys. Hadley, terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that. And we're very much looking forward to hearing more uh, from your interview with Jens Stoltenberg later on in the programme. Um, let's move on and let's just talk about a trip that is taking place. Uh, and it's quite a significant trip when you think about the security situation in Ukraine at the moment. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and the EU's Foreign Affairs Chief, uh, Josep Borrell, are set to travel to Kyiv today for talks with Ukraine's government. This a day after the bloc agreed to its first set of sanctions, specifically targeting Russia's coal imports. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is urging the EU to cut off broader Russian energy imports, saying the money flowing to Moscow is effectively fueling Putin's war machine. David Miliband, the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee and former UK foreign secretary, has told CNBC he fears fighting in Ukraine could go on for longer than many expect and urged international investigators to document all alleged instances of war crimes in that country. Tanya caught up with him for a special interview and started by asking him what his teams have been witnessing on the ground. The International Rescue Committee has become uh, used, I'm afraid, to the abuse of the rights of civilians in conflict around the world. We call it the age of impunity. And what we are seeing uh, in the images that are being conveyed is obviously shocking. But sadly, it's not surprising for anyone who's watched the war or participated in trying to do humanitarian effort in the wars in Syria or elsewhere. How shocked are you, David, at the alleged brutality of the Russians? Well, I hope that every human being retains a sense of shock at human beings. And I, I don't even want to say some of the things that are uh, alleged, but the let's call it the brutalization of other human beings. I hope that we retain a capacity for shock. It's very, very important that the alleged crimes really are documented uh, because justice needs to be pursued. In a world without accountability, impunity feeds on itself. But looking at President Zelensky addressing the United Nations just a few days ago, what more can be done? He is there appealing for his country. And of course, because Russia has a veto, they can't do anything. So what is the role of the UN Council? Should it be dissolved, as he's saying? 
Well, I think you're right to raise the importance of President Zelensky's speech. He called not just for an appeal to help Ukraine, he called for a refounding of the United Nations. And I think that this will be a war that has pivotal consequence. We've been arguing that in cases of Mati, of which there are a number in the world, the veto at the Security Council should be abandoned. At the moment, only France supports that position. I think it is also very, very important that the rights to aid that civilians are meant to have, not just the right to life, but the rights to aid are upheld. But there's no question, to my mind, that six weeks into the war, it's not gone as many people expected. I fear, frankly, that it's going to go on for quite a long time. David, of course, you were a former UK Foreign Secretary from 2007 to 2010. You had dealings with Putin. What, in your opinion, do you think his end game is here? Well, I think that the end game is about the glory of Mother Russia. And there are two very significant um, aspects of the, the impetus, I think, for his decision making at the moment. One, there's a very deep sense of victimhood, uh, victimhood for what he perceives to be a great power that's been laid low by the mistreatment of others. And second, there's a high degree of contempt for liberal societies. And so those two things, victimhood on the one hand, sense of contempt on the other, have fed into this idea that the way to build a, a great mother Russia again is a reuniting of uh, Russia and Ukraine in defiance of all historical um, parallels and historical records. And in that sense, his, his end game was might makes right. Coming up on the show, U.S. Fed hawks and doves differ on the medium-term outlook for monetary policy, but a near-term 50 basis point hike seems almost certain. I wonder whether there are actually any doves left, that said. If you vote for a 50 basis point hike, are you really ever considered a dove anymore? Anyway, we'll chat this after the break. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for doves, I'd refer you back to Prince's old track. But anyway, let's just remind the audience there is a podcast you can catch up with everything on Squawk Box, on the podcast, where all the best podcasts are uh, currently marketed. We'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. The latest COVID lockdown in Shanghai has now entered its 11th day with reports that residents are facing a shortage of essential goods such as medicine and food. City officials say there is uh, sufficient supplies of staples such as rice and meat, but they will try to reopen some wholesale markets and allow more delivery people out onto the streets, Karen. 
Uh, Jeff, let's take a look at that market action yesterday where we finally saw a bit more momentum coming back into the market after investors had been rattled by Brainard's comments about more aggressive rate moves and tackling uh, the Fed's balance sheet. So the wind down being brought forward for, versus some expectations, but also a stepped up wind down program. That saw stocks uh, reversing over the course of this week, but it was a bright spot yesterday. The Dow trading up by about a quarter of 1%, four tenths on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. Bit of a half-hearted attempt, and I just want to show you what transpired over the course of the day for tech stocks because it has been one area of the market that has been battered by these renewed fears around interest rates and you can see it was a day where stocks actually again fell at the start before rallying into the finish and tailing away so v-shaped trade so again does tell you a story about a market that was struggling for direction despite finishing out in the green with the other major indices uh, worth noting if you take a look at the sectors you can see how tech has fared over the course of the week and the session uh, you can see uh, this is the performance so far. Tech stocks uh, did track a little bit higher. Communication services lower though as you can see and don't forget uh, we're talking a lot of the big name fang stocks that go into this basket and fang stocks over the week have been down 3.3 percent for me fascinating too has been uh, what's played out in the healthcare sector this has been an area that's been bid up one of the best performers over the course of the session but also the week 1.8 percent and you've seen that in europe as well a lot of healthcare stocks are being sought at this point Worth noting the banks are not on the, the board here, but uh, banks have also had a very weak trading pattern. You've seen banks trade down, in fact, uh, underperforming even versus the FANGs, a 4.6% slide. We do kick up earnings season next week and banks are front and centre, of course, so perhaps a bit of positioning around that. But uh, I do wonder whether this is an early signal too around the loan portfolio that as we're talking about more aggressive rate hikes, it could choke off demand and already you're seeing that against the margin expansion story that typically propels the banks and uh, the ideas about profitability higher. Let's take you to Treasuries because uh, the yield has been on the move. Uh, the 10-year, 2.66%. We're approached this morning. So again, we're back towards this high water level. It has stretched out uh, the lead that it has over the two-year by 16 basis points. The five years I've noted over the course of this week, still inverted versus the 30-year. We've got that 2.72 versus 2.66. So you can see six basis points higher at the shorter end versus the longer. The dollar... This is how we look in the crosses this morning. A dollar is still climbing. You can see it has uh, gained ground this morning versus sterling euro and the yuan. Uh, you can see uh, gains there. 130.68 roughly on sterling. 108.60 uh, euro though has slipped off that 109 handle we saw yesterday. And uh, worth just noting the Russian ruble again on the decline versus the greenback. A quick look at commodities. Again, another big week when it comes to strategy and intervention. The IEA fairly significant for the market, releasing supply from reserves in addition to what the US is doing around the SBR. You can see though Brent and crude both picking up despite suffering declines for the week. We're roughly off about uh, three and a quarter percent uh, before the session on WTI and 3.6 on Brent. But as you can see, both are just leaning positive at this hour. Gold, despite all the geopolitical events, we're talking about with Ukraine and whether the war could undermine global growth. We are seeing gold prices just uh, lose a little bit of steam at this hour, although above the 1900 level. To the Asian markets. <clears throat> Early on, we are looking at Hong Kong falling. It's uh, slightly about 36 points or two-tenths of a percent, but patches are green across the rest of the boards. The only place we're seeing real appetite is around that commodities picture in Australia. The ASX bouncing just over half of a percent. And to the opening calls, it's been a challenging old week in Europe, but we've seen a very mixed picture on some of these boards. Second negative session in a row for the S&P uh, uh, stocks here, the uh, 600 benchmark stocks. But we have had the FTSE slightly more resilient, at least positive 
positive for the week. In contrast to steep falls weathered elsewhere, the French market, for instance, has been down about 3.3% this week. So you can see uh, it is looking up. It is uh, chasing some green arrows. All this on the eve of the election, the last trading day before we see uh, the result of the first round of the elections on Monday. And just as uh, the far right seems to be showing a little bit of force in the final countdown, Jeff. So some political risk, I think, has been demonstrated around the French stock trade this week. Yeah, very interesting. There's a lot for the markets to keep their eye on, not least the fact that there still seems to be quite a lot of tightness in the U.S. labor market uh, based on the U.S. initial jobless claims numbers that, that we saw here for the week ending April the 2nd. They dropped back to the lowest level since 1968, which they first hit in mid-March. Around 166,000 new unemployment filings were made, uh, which is well below the Dow Jones uh, 200,000 estimate. Continuing claims continue to rise to over 1.5 million, but are still near 50-year lows as the job market continues to reflect those labour supply shortages. U.S. Federal Reserve governors have given contrasting outlooks on policy. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard has implied that the central bank should continue to hike 50 basis points at a time for the rest of 2022, meaning rates could hit something like 3.5% by the end of the year. Meanwhile, FOMC members Charles Evans and Raphael Bostic striking a slightly more dovish tone, saying the Fed must have its sights set on returning to a more, quote, neutral policy. Well, the Fed's decision-making will hinge on many factors, most notably inflation, of course. And next week, we will get the latest key data point with March consumer prices due on Tuesday. A lot of interesting speculation as to whether that will look like something that starts with an 8 We will also be kicking off earnings season with the biggest U.S. banks leading the charge here, reporting on Wednesday and Thursday. So, Karen, there's an awful lot for markets to think about, I think, as we run into next week. And even though we do seem to be set on a largely negative week for U.S. stocks, interesting that we managed to see that bounce yesterday, most notably, I think, for the Dow and the S&P, although the Nasdaq also ended in positive territory. And it does beg the question here whether there is a mismatch now between the reality of what markets are being told and then the um, way that uh, the markets themselves are trading expectations here. And of course, we understand markets, equity markets specifically, are a a forward-looking instrument. Effectively, you're trying to discount future cash flows by buying your position today here. But as you think about what this tightening monetary policy is likely to mean for consumer demand and whether the Fed is uh, determined to slow inflation by bringing a dramatic slowdown in growth activity, you've got to bear in mind those comments that William Dudley, uh, a former Fed official, made on CNBC just a day or so ago, where he seemed to imply that the aim now of the FOMC is to radically bring down valuations on bond and equity markets. And if that is the case, and if he feels that he can now speak, quote, something like the truth in inverted commas, I'm surprised that we continue to see days where the market does get a bid. 
Jeff, I was astounded by some of the commentary that uh, the selling you've seen this week has been that realisation by some of the market that the Fed actually means what it says, which is, you know, we've been talking about this for weeks, about how aggressive the Fed could actually be, if not months, we've been talking about this. And I think if you consider when we all started out in our careers, we saw a series of back-to-back rate hikes, uh, Feds, uh, central banks were not afraid to bring about a hard landing in the economy to ensure that they tackled inflation. But if you think about current generations who've been in the markets, who've not seen this type of action, that every single time the Fed has their back, other central banks too, that they've been very active in the market to ensure that there isn't a recession. So uh, this handbrake turned effectively to uh, support markets and support economies, which I think is very different to what we all know from those textbooks as you dust off the playbook. I think many have been in the market for many, many years could see it straight away that this looked uh, a lot like what we've been through in the past. Also worth pointing out, I'm mentioned as we're teasing to break about the doves versus the hawks. Uh, all the doves have rolled over now when it comes to the 50 basis point move, it seems, or a more aggressive path here. And if you look out to 2023 as to the voting members, a lot of them look like hawks too. So that does say something about the potential end for the terminal rate, even for those who've had some disbelief about the potential for back-to-back rate hikes at this point. You've got to think about down the track, where does the terminal rate end up on the US interest rate? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.